Well, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. This is my first time doing the drive back and forth thing, and uh, Dave was just giving me a pep talk earlier this week. He's like, listen, you just have to get off at 10 after over there, and then you have to get off 20 after over in, in Grand Haven. So naturally, I got off at 17 after over there. So needless to say, I'm ready to go. Are you ready to go? Let's get into the book of Haggai. Haggai, we're continuing now week two in this series on the finding majors in the minor prophets. And um, uh, last week, Dave taught through the first 11 verses. Today, um, we're going to be going a little bit farther. But before we get there, I want to tell you about a decision point that happened in my life 16 years ago this spring. 16 years ago this spring, and if I could, let me back up even before that time. When I was 12 years old, my dad took me to a Promise Keepers event at the Silver Dome. Do you guys remember the Silver Dome? That used to be a thing. Went to Promise Keepers, I think it was 1997, and that was when I first recognized Christ as my Savior. That's when I remember first receiving Him as Savior and as Lord. And the other thing that that moment really changed in my life was recognizing, wow, there's a drummer playing in church music right now. That blew my mind. I thought that was the coolest thing. And as a drummer and as a piano player, as a musician at 12 years old, I was like, that is so cool. And I remember very vividly in that moment and then kind of proceeding from that moment, the Lord laying on my heart to use a musical gifting that I had to serve him in ministry. I remember that from 12 years old. I had this calling in my life that later would get affirmed over throughout uh, my years growing up, uh, being involved in worship ministry at my church and being involved in worship ministry at my school and honing in these musical gifts that were being affirmed and confirmed by others as well. And in my heart, knowing God was calling me, you should use this for me in ministry. Use this for me. And so naturally, I go throughout school. I go throughout junior high and high school. And you get to the point where you graduate in 12th grade, and naturally I got accepted to Calvin College to study biology. So I was at Calvin College studying to go into the medical field, specifically dentistry, mainly because of my last name. It's Moeller, in case I thought you guys knew that. That was... Okay. Stupid joke, okay. But I still really wanted to pursue music. I still wanted to pursue music ministry, but to me at that time, there wasn't any money in that, and I needed to do something that would pay for things, but realistically, I was also stuck in hidden addiction, and I also felt the shame of thinking that ministry was for those who had their life put together and didn't struggle with anything. Uh, so I pushed off those inclinations of the Lord. I pushed off that calling to pursue Him, and I started going a direction that was paving my own way to the success that I desired. And I pursued that direction for over half of my college career. And then we get to 16 years ago this spring when my life was flipped upside down. I decided to come home on a weekend to visit with family, go to church with my family, and then on the way home, I decided to take the long way back to Grand Rapids, going through Grand Haven to stop by, and this is something I would typically do, usually unannounced. I would just show up to Dave and Kristen with son's house, and they, dear friends of mine, and I'd known them for a long time, I'd just show up at their house and, and say, hey, do you want to have coffee and talk? And that particular time, um, God stirred their heart to ask me a couple questions, and that conversation over coffee hit me like a brick in the face, because at the end of that conversation, I was led to a decision point on whether or not I was going to be obedient to what God clearly was calling me to in my life. 
tell you a little bit more, more about that later, but I want you to hear this as we dive into the passage today. I have lived the reality of what we are reading about in Haggai in the story of Israel. I have lived this reality And I hope desperately for you today, if you find yourself at a decision point, at a crossroads on where God may be calling you to, that you would consider your ways, as it says in Haggai, that you would act boldly in obedience. Quick recap, Dave was in the first 11 verses of chapter 1 last week, setting the stage for the amazing turn of events that we see the Israelite remnant going to, where Cyrus, the king of Persia, allowed the people through a vision of the Lord to go back to their land to rebuild the temple of God. And how did they do with that? Not good. They just got the foundation. They just got the, the foundation of the temple laid. I mean, even the hotels by the mall in Muskegon did better than that. But instead, they got distracted, and they were hit with adversaries, and instead of building a temple, they spent the next 18 years building their own houses with paneled walls, selfishly and even ignorantly, avoiding the calling that God gave them to build His house. And as we saw, it wasn't going well for them. It said they were sowing much, but harvesting little. They were eating, but not being satisfied, having clothes, but never being warm. They were earning wages, but wondering where all the money was going, storing it in bags of holes. And I'm telling you, I have lived this walking in a direction away from what I knew God was calling me to with all of the stupid but compelling excuses. And in many ways, I felt that exact description in my life. I was sowing, but I was harvesting little. I was eating, but not satisfied, clothed, but never warm. And my money just seemed to be who knows where it went. Which is funny because the reason why I was going that direction in the first place was the opposite of all of those things. And the question is, why does God allow these hard things in our lives when we're running away from him? It's his love. Did you know that? It's God's love and grace that he would allow those hard things in our lives when we know that we're running away from him to get our attention, to say, turn around, consider your ways. How is this working for you? And at Harvest, we have a couple phrases that we like to say. One, you might know it. See if you can finish this. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. That's discipline. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And when we do things that are an affront to God's glory, he graciously but lovingly allows this discipline in our lives not to be mean, but to be lovingly calling us back to him. Turn around. Turn around. And that's where I found myself in my story, and that's where we find ourselves in the story, in this story, in the book of Haggai. God, through Haggai the prophet, just calls them out on their disobedience and ignorant selfishness, asks them this, consider your ways. How is this working out for you right now? It's not good. So let's pick up here now in verse 12. Are you there? Haggai chapter 1, verse 12 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all of the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Here's the first point this morning. Obedience is the catalyst for God's presence. Obedience is the catalyst for the presence of God in our lives. You know what a catalyst is? If I can go back to my science major, there was one good thing about being a science major for that long. I know what a catalyst is. A catalyst is something 
that in a chemical formula changes something else very quickly. Okay? And so think about oxygen as a gas, hydrogen as a gas. They can exist for eternity without anything happening. But as soon as you introduce a spark, what happens? Water instantly turns into water. That is a catalyst. And obedience is the catalyst for the presence of God in our lives. We should never underestimate the power of obedience and especially the power of unified obedience that we see here, unified corporate obedience of the people of Israel. Because what happens? God showed up in an unbelievable way, and he showed up fast. In just 23 days, he showed up. And how do we know that? After 18 years of disobedience, it says in verse 15, it's on the 24th day of the month, the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. The oracle right before this was on the first day of the sixth month. This is on the 24th day of the sixth month. So in 23 days, we see the obedience of the people, and God showed up fast. They put aside their excuses. They trusted the Lord, and God quickly says, I am with you. 18 years of disobedience. How many of you desperately desire those words in your life right now from God? I am with you. How many of you need to hear from the Lord this morning saying, I am with you right now in your context, in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your circumstance? The truth is you're not too far from God to turn around right now. You're not too far from the Lord to choose obedience, to choose repentance right now. Where is God calling you to be obedient? 18 years the people were ignoring God's command, and in 23 days with mustard seed faith, surrendering their own wills, laying down their own selfishness, they turned around saying, we choose obedience, and God shows up and says, I am with you. And I did the math, okay? 18 years, 6,570 days. 23 days in comparison to that. I mean, how fast God showed up in comparison to the length of their disobedience. And here's the lie. A lie that the enemy tries to tell us often when we're going in the wrong direction. Maybe you are on a road away from the Lord for so long, 18 years perhaps. The lie is that, okay, well, you're that far gone for 18 years. It's going to take at least 18 years to get back into a right relationship with the Lord. It's just too hard. It's going to take too long. It may not be worth it. And that's just, it's a lie. God shows up in three and a half thousandths of the amount of time compared to their disobedience. That's 285 times quicker God shows up compared to the length of their running away. In other words, as soon as you turn around, as soon as you repent, as soon as you choose obedience, guess who is there waiting for you, chasing you, so lovingly and graciously chasing you? The Lord is. Would you continue to run after knowing that God has been so lovingly chasing you for that long? Well, it's too hard, Chris. No, it's not. I don't even know what to do. Maybe I want to be obedient. Maybe I do want to turn around. Maybe I do want to repent right now. I just don't even know what that means, and I don't know where that would go, and I don't even know what to do right now. Well, guess what? The Lord's got you in that too. Here's a second point. Let God's presence stir your heart. When you have the presence of God with you in your obedience, he stirs your heart in the direction you need to go. Let's pick up here in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. 
This word stirring here that we see, they, stir, they were stirred. It means literally to awaken. The Spirit moved these men to awaken them up, to motivate these men in the direction that God was calling them to, in the direction that God wanted them to go. And I think there's an important thing here in the order of the stirring that we should notice in the text. Notice he stirs the spirits of the leaders and then the spirits of the people. More likely, God stirred the spirits of these leaders who then communicated that stirring. The communication from Haggai the prophet to the leaders stirred the spirit of these leaders who then communicated that conviction to the remnant of Israel. And then their spirits were stirred as well in the same direction. And when I think about our church and our calling as pastors and as leaders and as elders to be stirred by the Lord in the direction that He is calling the church and to lead you in being stirred by the Lord to trust His leading, this isn't an easy task. And we covet your prayers as leaders of this church that God would continue to stir our hearts in the direction He desires us to go for His glory and for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the stirring of the Lord in their hearts. And also respond in allowing God to stir your spirit through the spiritual authorities in your life. Maybe it's a small group leader who's called you out on sin. Maybe it's a pastor preaching a sermon that seems to cut directly to your heart. You think that he's actually talking to you, that he must know something about you that he heard through the grapevine and he created an entire message just for you. The Lord does that. It's not us, I can tell you that. Or maybe it's the soul care counselor that challenges you on an area that you need to be obedient in. Would we allow the stirring of the Spirit of God from the authorities in our lives to challenge us to be stirred by the Lord in the direction of obedience? And men in the room, if I could just uh, address something real quick. The leadership of this church has been stirred by the Lord, stirred by the Spirit with a message tonight for vertical men. Don't miss it be there. Make it a priority. And what this shows us is that others are involved in our transformative walk with the Lord. We're not meant to do life alone. We're not meant to live on this island like my Christianity. It's my thing. No one else gets to get involved. No one else needs, gets to say anything. No one else gets to talk into my life. It's me. It's just me and the Lord. Just me and the Lord. Guess what? That's not how Jesus created it to be. We are meant to walk in community with one another. And what, uh, what's interesting is uh, uh, the way that God uses these people in our lives is often in the form of a hard conversation, isn't it? I don't remember the last time that I enjoyed having a conversation where a, a spiritual authority in my life was convicting me of sin or a pattern in my life that needed to change for the glory of God, but I have had them enough in my life to be so grateful that God would have used these authorities in my life to be bold enough to risk the comfort of our relationship for my overall spiritual health and well-being. I thank God for that. And if I could get practical... When someone in your life, a spiritual authority, someone who has chips in your game, someone who has invested so much into your life to see you move in a direction that honors the Lord, when that person approaches you and says, hey, I have some concerns, can we talk? Could it be that God stirred their heart for you? 
Could it be that God is using them to try to stir your heart? And could it be that God is using their obedience in the hard conversations to help you see your shortcomings so that you can also respond in obedience and experience the blessing of God's presence in your life that leads to wisdom in pointing you in the direction that God intends for you for his glory and for your joy? Please, please, do not bristle or bear offense when someone who's invested so much into your life wants to talk about their concerns in your life. Humbly lean into those conversations. And don't be surprised when God radically uses those experiences to change your life. So I'm sitting there with David and Kristen with Sen, cup of coffee in hand, sitting at their countertop uh, table in their kitchen. And Kristen, knowing that I'm more than halfway through the program already at Calvin College, just boldly flat out asks me, uh, why exactly are you going into dentistry? I thought you had a heart for ministry. Any of you had a Mama with Sen talk before? Yeah. Um, I, and I was like, I, well, I'm taken aback. Um, I, well, of course, I mean, of, cor- of course I have a heart for ministry. Of course I want to serve the Lord, but like I got to make money. I got to be able to provide for my family. I got to be able to uh, have a house. I got to be able to do things to make money, to be able to uh, be able then do ministry. See, in my head, in my head, money was the fuel to the ability to do ministry. So if I had enough money, then naturally I'd want to serve the Lord because I would have provided for myself enough in other areas so that I could give God my spare time. Now, please hear me. I'm not making an argument that everyone is called into full-time vocational ministry and that if you have a good job that makes you decent money, that you're not honoring the Lord because you're not a pastor. I'm not saying that, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, he's not saying that. What I am saying is that I knew what God called me to and I was running from it. And this was the first time I was getting confronted with that reality. And my excuse, really, my excuse was, well, the world, the world runs on money, so I need to make it, right? Even if I want to serve the Lord. To which Kristen um, boldly and lovingly replied, well, at what point in your master plan, Chris, are you going to choose to believe that God would provide for you? And so the best way I can describe what happened after that was like those grown men slapping competitions. Have you seen that on the internet? Two grown men on either side of a folding table and they just slap the daylights out of the other person until someone ultimately is passed out on the floor. I know there was more to the conversation on that evening, but I don't remember it. I don't remember uh, anything else about that, but I, I just remember that when Kristen asked me that question, it wasn't her. It was as if the Lord specifically spoke to me and said, Chris, consider your ways. How is it working out for you so far? You're spending all of this time trying to build your own life so perfectly to get a huge house with paneled walls, enough money to support your greedy lifestyle. How's that going? Uh, when will you trust me? It was a total knockout. And that night, I'm driving back to my dorm room. I was a wreck inside, and then I was a wreck outside, weeping in my bed, face down with uh, the, the thought of a turning point of a huge decision in my life that had so many ramifications, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't do anything until that boulder on my heart was lifted. And so finally, I surrendered. Years Years after the initial calling of God in my life, I finally was cut to the heart. And I said, God, I don't care about the money anymore. I just want to be yours. I want you to be in the driver's seat. And I'm telling you, it was like I could breathe again. 
and my spirit was stirred toward a new direction. I'm telling you, God even opened every single door in that direction, and he led me through, not with confusion, but with confidence from that day forward. And so he did with the remnant of Israel. They heard the words from God, I am with you, and they were stirred to drop what they were doing and start working on the temple, and that's where we get to chapter 2 now. Verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all of the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Here's the third thing. Let God's presence keep you going. Let God's presence keep you going in the direction that he has called you. The story jumps ahead by just about a month. It's the 21st day of the seventh month now, and this is where we see the third oracle from the prophet Haggai. And what does he address? Apparently, there was some discouragement in the camp. Apparently, there was some discouragement among the elders of Israel who maybe are overseeing this project of the temple, and they were old enough to have been able to see with their very eyes the temple of Solomon's day in the glory and the splendor of Solomon's temple, and they're looking at what they're building compared to that temple. And just as a little bit of a comparison, Solomon's temple, it took 180,000 men to complete over the course of seven years. And in its construction, 570,000 pounds of gold, 1.25 million pounds of silver, and they didn't even measure the bronze because there was so much bronze in Solomon's temple. It would have been a glorious sight to see. And so the people are looking at what they were building, playing the comparison game, and and probably thinking to themselves, like, this is a dollhouse compared to what Solomon built. God isn't going to be pleased with this. Why would God want to dwell here? Why would God want anything to do with this? And this is after just a month. What happened to the zeal that they had in obedience? What, What happened to the excitement to follow the Lord in obedience? Do you remember what Pastor Dave said last week? When a movement of God happens, what usually is quick to follow? Opposition adversaries. And by, and by the way, this is normal. It's to be expected because we have an enemy whose sole purpose in life is to try to thwart the movement of God in your life. And how does he do this? Often, it's the classic comparison game. It's like, well, I know you're trying, but you're not as good in the so-so. I know, I, you know, I, well, it's a good try, but you're really not amounting to what you were committing to and what you said you would be. It's, you know, it's been a month. Maybe you, uh, shouldn't you be in a better spot? Shouldn't you, uh, shouldn't you not be struggling like you're struggling right now? Like, aren't you supposed to be clean now? Why is this so hard for you? That person that shared their testimony in small group made it seem so easy compared to what you're going through right now. Maybe you just don't have what it takes. Maybe you're not strong enough. Maybe you aren't able to meet your goals. Maybe you should give up. See, the remnant of Israel is looking back thinking, Well, the way the house looks must somehow affect the movement of God or the presence of God in their lives. And how many of us have believed that lie, thinking like, I need to clean myself up to to perfection in order for God to actually do anything with me? It's not true. God won't accept me until I clean myself up. It's not true. God meets you right where you're at. 
Think back to a time when God showed himself so present in your life. Was it a Solomon's temple type time in your life or was it a hard time in your life, a trial? Look how God responds to their discouragement. Again, he dresses the leaders first and then the people. More likely the leaders addressing the people with the word of the Lord. He says, be strong. Come on, guys, work hard. In other words, persevere. Why? Because I am with you. Obedience is the catalyst for God's presence, not the beauty of the house or the culture or the time period. And then he calls back this callback about Egypt. Why does he do that? Because this was a time, or that was a time in Israel's history where it was another time where they were playing the comparison game and they were looking back in their wilderness saying, oh, that we would be back in Egypt with the leeks and the melons and the meat. Back in Egypt? That was 400 years of slavery. Oftentimes when we look back like that, we're not looking back with a reality, we're looking back with a deception. God's like, my covenant with you coming out of Egypt is that I was going to be with you, and that's the same covenant I have with you right now. I'm committing to that. I'm with you. My spirit remains in your midst, says the Lord of hosts. And notice, that Lord of hosts, he says that quite a bit in this book. It literally means Lord of armies, Lord of angels, Lord of the whole universe, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And in most cases, it's a term used in the context of warfare and taking over control. This is God saying, I'm sovereign. Trust me. In the midst of your discouragement, I am in control. Even though you play the comparison game, don't forget, I'm all over it. In the area you're worried about right now, don't forget, I'm the God over armies of angels. And what does he say? I'm with you. My spirit is in your midst. Persevere. Persevere in the presence of God. Let God's presence keep you going in that direction. And here's a fourth thing. Watch God's presence keep getting better. Watch God's presence keep getting better. Let's pick up now in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. God's continuing his pep talk, talk and it's like, you're, you're so worried about how the house looks. You're, you value the wrong things. You're worried that you don't have enough gold or silver or anything that makes this temple look nice. Listen, I already own it all. There's a day coming when I'm literally going to shake the heavens and shake the nations and shake the earth. Now, when we hear things like that in prophetic literature, it should cause us to pause because those are, that's a verbiage that's used for day of the Lord type references, shaking the heavens, shaking the earth. And when we see that, we need to look and see uh, uh, something that we see in prophetic literature a lot. And so to go ahead and throw up that next slide. In prophetic literature, we have what's called near-far prophecy. And a lot of prophecy that we read in scripture it will have an effectuation in the day of the prophet it will also have an effectuation in the day of Christ's first coming and effectuation in the day of Christ's return. And so in this case, the shaking of the nations, the latter glory being greater than the former, we see the shaking of the nations in Haggai's day and the fact that there was a movement of God through Cyrus's heart to allow the temple of, of the Israelite people to be built again post-Babylonian exile. That would have shaken the nations. 
That would have blown people away that that was actually happening. And then in Christ's time, think about this. When did we see the shaking of the heavens and the shaking of the earth in Christ's time? Not only in the teaching that he gave to the people that would shake the nations, but he, when he died on the cross for the sake of our sin, the ground literally shook and the foundation of the temple literally shook and the heavens and the earth were shook and the veil was torn, opening up the holy of holies and the presence of God. And then not long after that, the day of Pentecost, when again the earth was shook and the presence of God through his spirit would come and indwell the believer's hearts. And that's the shaking of the spirit, the, the shaking of the nations, the shaking of the heavens and the shaking of the earth. And that's old covenant versus new covenant. And that's where we see the latter glory being greater than the former. Because what happened? In the old covenant, it was the spirit would reside in their midst. That's God inhabits the praise of his people. When we worship together, the spirit of the Lord inhabits our praise. But the new covenant, because Jesus went to his death, willingly died because of our sin, because of our shame, dying the death that we deserve, and then rising again, defeating death and sin. And were we to believe that he did that for us because of our sin and receive him as Savior and Lord, no longer is he only dwelling in our midst, but he dwells in us. That's the new covenant that we have in the love and the grace and the mercy of God, that God not only would dwell with us, but he would dwell in us. That's earth-rattling, earth-shaking news. And that changes everything, the presence of God. God's like, you think it's pretty, pretty amazing that I would show up at Solomon's temple or that I would even show up at this temple? Think about this. The latter glory is greater than the former. I'm going to live in you. The te- we are, we're called temples of the Holy Spirit. He's like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to dwell in you. And then, of course, we have the culmination of the latter glory when the heavens and the earth being shaken and the nations being shaken, when Christ comes again on the clouds at the trumpet sound and he's going to make all things new, no more tears, no more pain, no more sin, new heavens, new earth, and it says the dwelling place of God will be with man. You see how his presence gets better. Watch his presence get better in your life and in the direction of obedience that he's calling you to. The latter glory will be greater than the former We may be constantly looking backward, thinking in our life that uh, it was easier back then or that it was better back then, and we may even allow those thoughts to jump into temptation, to want to give up in the direction that we know God is calling us to. Listen, don't give up. It is not worth it to give up. It may be hard, but let God's presence keep you going and watch his presence get better over time. The latter glory is greater than the former. And I look back now over my life, And I can tell you what's so great about what he says in this passage is at the very end. He says, and in this place, I will give peace. In this place, the latter glory being greater than the former. In this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. And when I look back on my life, sometimes I will count the blessings that I would have sacrificed had God not not pricked my heart to pursue him in obedience. I wouldn't have been able to go to Moody Bible Institute. I wouldn't have been connected at a church to cut my teeth in ministry. I wouldn't have met my wife who was introduced to me through that same church. And I wouldn't have had the phone call just four years after that decision from David was sent to say, hey, do you want to plant a church? I wouldn't have been part of this church plant with my wife and get to see my kids so excited to come to church every weekend. And I pray that they would always be excited, that they would always love coming to the house of the Lord. 
I wouldn't have been able to see my parents get involved and even baptize my dad during our first baptism service at International Aid. And I also wouldn't have been able to see the amazing way personally that God came in and transformed me from one degree of glory to another personally, defeating addiction, putting to death sin. See, the, the former glory of what I was looking to in the big house and the lots of money and the things of this world that I was running to, they paled in comparison to the blessing that God has given me in his presence in my life. I may not be rich, but I am more blessed than I deserve, and God has more than proved himself in that obedient decision years ago. So I end with this, a big question for you. Where could today's obedience lead you tomorrow? And if I could just be honest with you uh, right now, if you could be honest with you right now, where are places in our lives that we need to surrender to the Lord? You don't get to a point where it's like, I've made it. There's always going to be something in our lives that God may be convicting us of, and we need to respond to that conviction with obedience. Where are we running away right now from the Lord? Where are we dragging our feet? And if I could ask this question in a harder way, is your disobedience right now worth the future regret? Not long ago, I went to the dentist and... um, you know, my dentist lovingly told me, he's like, listen, Chris, you have to change some things because there's some future problems happening right now that if you don't change some habits right now, it's going to lead with a lot, it's going to end up with a lot of hurt and uh, it's going to be pretty costly if you don't change some of your habits right now. And he goes to our church and so he, he specifically said, he's like, hey, bro, you need to lay off the church donuts. And he had the boldness to be able to tell me, listen, you're going to have future regret if you continue in this direction unless you change some things right now. And I tell you what, I listened. I haven't had a church donut since. And now that, that appointment was this past Thursday. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, if you knew what you were doing now was going to cost you so greatly later, wouldn't you want to change it? Would you really think it was worth it to stay status quo, to stay in the same sludge, to stay in the same thing knowing that it was going to cost you so greatly later. Now listen, the dentist example, that's silly. But there are some of you in the room in hidden habitual sin that you are not willing to let go of, looking at porn, thinking you're not hurting anyone. Maybe you have someone on the side that no one else knows about. You are fooling yourself thinking that that future regret is worth it. When you get caught, not if you get caught, When you get caught, it is way better to confess and repent right now. And listen, there's going to be consequence even with that confession, but I'm telling you, it is way better to confess and repent than to get caught because God is able to work so powerfully and heal through that confession. He is faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you, to put you back on track compared to the hurt and the carnage of getting caught. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, I just don't know if I have it to stop getting drunk right now or to stop being dependent on substances. I need these things in order to settle the fears that I have or my anxieties that I have. Listen, we've seen it time and time again. We've walked alongside people who have recognized the same power that raised Christ from the dead can be alive in them to help them have victory over areas of sin in their life that they've been stuck in for years. And some of you may be sitting here thinking, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff. If believing in him means that he's going to change me, what if I don't want to change? What if I like the way that I live? What if I like being my own king? I don't submit to anybody, and I don't need to listen to anybody. I am my own boss. 
My question to you is, is all of that ultimately worth it for the ultimate end of spending an eternity apart from God in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth? Would you bow the knee to recognize Jesus as Lord? Would you recognize Him as Savior? And maybe you don't understand what that means yet, but would you trust Him as the God of the universe who made that way possible at such a great cost, sending His Son to die for you because of the sin that you are stuck in, because of our sin? And when we recognize that and we repent and we turn from our disobedience, God shows up in such a powerful way. I want that so desperately for you. Recognize him as Lord. Recognize him as Savior. God's word says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. God, I just pray that in this moment right now, if you are convicting hearts like you convicted mine 16 years ago, God, would you allow these people to move on that conviction that they would be obedient to what you are calling them to right now? God, I don't know what it is specifically, but God, would you make that so clear and so evident in their hearts and in their minds right now that they would recognize you not only as Savior, but as Lord and pursue you in obedience. And God, we know your promise to be true, that you will show up and you will be with them and your presence will transform them from one degree of glory to another. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.